What is up, everybody, and welcome back to episode four of the Newly Meds podcast. Today, I have a really awesome episode. Uh, it's something that we see really quite frequently in the pre-hospital setting. Uh, it affects about 300 million people a year, and with that number, it has a 250,000 patient mortality rate. So this disease that we're going to talk about today can be really lethal if we don't identify it early and if we don't really start to treat our patients uh pretty aggressively with this disease process, making sure we're doing everything that we can for them. It can definitely lead to some really negative effects on our patient population. So we want to make sure we're doing a really good job as providers to treat these patients exceptionally well and identifying it early. So I know what you're thinking, and that probably is, well, Will, what are you talking about? What's the effect that I'm going to have on my patient when I don't even know what we're talking about in this episode. And you probably guessed it from this episode's title. But today, we're going to be attacking asthma. And with that, we're going to be talking about a few different things. We're going to sort of talk about the anatomy and physiology, the etiology, and dive really into the pathophysiology of this disease process. We're going to talk about some clinical features and manifestations. And as always, we're going to end this episode with some real-world examples, some clinical tips and tricks that, as this podcast has been geared around toward this whole time, what I wish I would have known as a new provider, some things that I, I really think are important for you to know as a new provider, as a seasoned provider, as a medic, a nurse, a physician, anybody in this healthcare realm can really benefit from the information in this episode. As always, in the description of this episode, I'm going to put some of the studies that I reference uh, and some really good clinical information that I think you all should look at in regards to this disease process because this information is by no means anecdotal. Uh, it's coming off some well-studied research articles and some things that I've seen in the field. So let's jump into the anatomy a little bit. When we're thinking about asthma, we're really thinking about some acute bronchoconstriction and some increased mucus production that is caused by a trigger. So clinically, when we think asthma, right, we all think about the wheezing, the tachypnea, maybe some accessory muscle use. These are all clinical signs and symptoms that we think about when we hear asthma exacerbation or asthma attack maybe even someone that's just short of breath and has a history of asthma. All of these thoughts get put into our mind pretty early on. But it's really important to understand why these clinical signs and symptoms are being fed into a lot of our knowledge bases and that they're sitting really at the forefront of our minds when we're thinking about asthma. And with that, it really has to dive into the anatomy and pathophysiology of this disease process, which is exactly what we're going to do right now. So with asthma, really to start, when we think about the etiology of this disease, it's actually fairly unknown. But the general consensus is that asthma is 
typically genetically based. So if someone in your family has asthma, they maybe your parents, your grandparents, maybe it comes all the way down our genetic line. That is a, a really key factor in generating asthma for future populations and also some environmental factors. So depending on where we grew up, if we grew up in the woods or in an urban setting or in an environment that has uh, poor air quality, all of that has to do with how asthma is clinically manifested in our patient. So with that really in-depth etiology out of the way, right, clearly not too much there because we don't really know 100% what causes our asthma. Let's jump into the anatomy and pathophysiology because we are locked down on that information. We know exactly what's going on in our bodies when someone has this acute asthma exacerbation. So thinking about this on a really micro level, when our patient receives a trigger, whether that be some sort of air pollutant, cat dandruff, dust, maybe even cold air in the winter, some trigger is going to create a response in our body that gives our patient this asthma exacerbation. And really, it's broken down into two phases, the early phase and the late phase. So when we think about the early phase, we're thinking about IgE antibodies that are released by plasma cells. And when these IgE antibodies are released, they bind to mast cells and basophils. So if we remember, our mast cells release histamine. So it's going to create this histamine response in our bodies. And that's the general marker of the second phase of an asthma exacerbation, which is the late phase. And that's when these basophils and mast cells release histamine, prostaglandins, and leukotrienes. And this is going to cause some airway tightness and bronchoconstriction and ultimately it's going to cause a airway hyperresponsiveness which is generally the term that we're hearing when you hear a provider say that asthma causes air trapping because it 100% does so when we think about this response in our body that starts with our IgE antibodies moves into our mast cells releases this histamine what exactly is that doing? So when we think about our lungs, we have our trachea that splits off at the carina into our left lung and our right lung. And if we remember a little bit about our anatomy, our right lung has three lobes, our left lung has two lobes, and inside of those lung lobes, we have our primary bronchus our secondary bronchus, and only on the right side we have a tertiary bronchus because it has that extra lobe. And at the end of those bronchi, we have bronchioles. And at the very end of those bronchioles, we have alveoli. So when we're thinking about asthma, we're really thinking about uh, deep into our bronchioles, and we're talking about some beta-2 receptors. And inside of those bronchioles, we have smooth muscle and beta-2 receptors. So when we have this histamine response, we're going to get smooth muscle constriction, which is our bronchoconstriction, and we're going to get increased mucosal production. And as this disease process goes on, we're going to have an increase in our vasculature permeability, which is going to create a little bit of leaking in our body, 
and we're going to have a decrease in the circulation of oxygen-rich blood to our body. And when we think about this, this is really what's causing asthma to be fatal. If we have this increase in vasculature permeability, if we're having extreme bronchoconstriction that's being untreated, if we're having an increase in our mucosal production, we have this prolonged expiratory phase because we have this hyper-responsiveness in our airway. We have air trapping because our patients are tachypnic, our bronchioles are constricted because we're not wanting that polluted air to get in because it has some sort of trigger that's constricting our bronchioles. So because of that, we're not able to get air out. And so that air is getting trapped in our lungs. We have all these anatomical negative impacts to our body. And that's really what makes asthma really lethal in a lot of our patients. And if these patients get treated and their asthma exacerbation subsides, when we have asthma attacks over and over again, we get this scarring to our bronchioles and that fibrotic tissue, which is going to cause permanent bronchoconstriction. So it's especially important to understand when we're doing our patient assessment, a few key questions asking them, is this your first asthma attack? Second, is it your 2000th or 2 millionth, right? We really want to know how frequent these asthma attacks are happening in our patient, because if it's a chronic issue, we may have to think about some different treatment routes to go down if there's that scarred bronchial tissue, that fibrotic tissue due to the repeated asthma attacks that's causing permanent bronchoconstriction. So the main thing that we're taking away here from our anatomy is that it starts out with this IgE antibody, it moves into a mast cell, releases histamine. And the key takeaways that you have to remember is that we have bronchoconstriction because the smooth muscle in our bronchioles and the beta-2 receptors are constricting and there's increased mucosal production. We have a large increase of mucus in the airway. Those are huge takeaways from the anatomy of this. And really, that's the anatomy and physiology of this disease process. We have this inflamed mucosa, bronchoconstriction, vascular permeability, and over time, this can lead to scarring of that tissue and permanent bronchoconstriction. So now, what are we going to look at with this disease process is some of the clinical features how this starts, because now we understand the anatomy and the physiology behind this. We have a fairly good understanding of our respiratory system. As we talked about, when this disease process happens, our bronchi, those bronchus that are splitting off of the trachea at the carina, are going to constrict. And at the end of those bronchus are the bronchioles, which is where the smooth muscle is. And that's going to start to constrict and have that increased mucosal production. Those alveoli are going to have some air trapping and some gas trapping because of this. And so due to all of that, we're going to have some pretty significant clinical findings. So when we're talking about the clinical features of asthma, I'm going to revert back to what I said in the beginning of this episode. We've been beaten 
and beaten and beaten about the wheezing, the chest tightness, the shortness of breath, which we call dyspnea. We all know those key words with our asthmatics. And that really does reign true. A lot of our asthmatics are going to have that trigger. And once that trigger occurs, the patient's going to have a cough. They're going to have a cough because if we remember from just a few short minutes ago, we have an increased mucus production. So that patient's going to want to start to cough. They've got some bronchoconstriction going on. And that's one of our early clinical features. That's going to lead into some tachypnea and some shallower respirations due to that prolonged expiratory phase because of that bronchoconstriction, which is going to further progress into some labored breathing, some accessory muscle use. Maybe we see them breathing from uh, intercostal retractions or from their sternocleidomastoid. Our patient might have some chest tightness. And as this disease progresses, they might not even be able to verbalize that they have chest tightness or shortness of breath because they can't produce full sentences. And as they can't produce full sentences, this might start to pend into what we would call respiratory failure or severe respiratory distress when our patient starts to become extremely exhausted, pale, SpO2 less than 92%, and we're really talking about it being uh, significantly low, maybe in the low 80s, 70s, and they're going to have an altered mental status. That's going to be a key finding when we're treating these patients and having this clinical feature of altered mental status, hypoxia, pale, dyspnea, chest tightness, labor breathing, cough, all of it. So when we're doing our assessment on these patients... We're starting to look at how they appear visually. Are they pale, cyanotic? Do they have that accessory muscle use? But when we're getting hands-on with these patients, there's really two key things that we're going to see with asthma. One of them has to do with percussion. So if we're going to use percussion on this patient, we're going to hear some hyper-resonance. And this is because of the air trapping. And this is because they have that hyper-responsive airway. That airway that's really reactive, really holding that air in, and it's constricted. We've got that prolonged expiratory phase that we're going to hear over and over again, the bronchoconstriction, which we're going to hear over and over again with our asthma attacks. We have all these clinical anatomical features that are causing these findings. And then finally, when we auscultate these patients, when we listen to lung sounds, we're going to hear some wheezing, uh, depending on how progress the asthma attack is, uh, is really going to break down the amount of wheezing that we hear, maybe where we're hearing it. Are we hearing it in the basal lobes? Are we hearing maybe a little more upper respiratory wheezing? Is it global? Are we hearing diffuse wheezes? How loud are the wheezes? Uh, And if it's not super progressed, a lot of that wheezing is going to come during the expiratory phase because that's that bronchoconstriction. If it's really progressed. It may be global. It may be inspiratory, expiratory wheezing, but that is a key clinical feature of our asthma attacks is that wheeze. So when we're sizing up our asthma patient, we've done a really good assessment. We've looked at them visually. We've seen their appearance. We're fairly certain that our patient is having an acute asthma exacerbation. You're standing in front of them. You're the paramedic, the nurse, the physician, the EMT, 
What are you going to do? And I would urge you to jump in on these patients early. Get them on some oxygen. Calm them down a little bit. But ultimately, this is a disease process that you just can't be talked out of. I can't say, hey, slow your breathing, you're going to get better. So really what we need to do with these patients is get aggressive in our pharmacological treatments. We need to get them to a place that we can treat them. That may be in the back of the ambulance, that may be in their home, could be in the ER, the ICU, the waiting room, wherever it is, we need to start zoning in on treating these patients. And we need to zone in on the pharmacology. So let's jump into that a little bit. And that's where this episode is really going to have the meat and potatoes here because that's what's so important in treating our asthmatics is the pharmacology. So we're going to talk about, obviously, our oxygen therapy. We're going to hit on some beta-2 agonists, and that's often going to be our nebulized albuterol or duoneb with apotropium. We're going to talk a little bit about epinephrine. We're going to talk about ipratropium bromide, corticosteroids, and magnesium. And then we're going to finish up here that does fall into our treatment category that's outside of pharmacology with some ventilation. Whether we use our non-invasive ventilation, maybe a BVM depending on their respiratory rate, or hopefully some CPAP if they don't have that altered mental status. But if they do, I'm really going to urge you to go more towards an invasive ventilation. If we're seeing our patient with severe exhaustion, deteriorating level of consciousness, altered mental status, these are signs that our patient is pending cardiac arrest due to this respiratory failure. And in those scenarios, our patients need intubated. But it's really hopeful that we don't need to intubate our patient that we can get them turned around fairly quickly with the appropriate response and the knowledge of this disease to help these patients out a ton. And that's going to come with early assessment and recognition of this disease process that's treated with aggressive pharmacology. That is really what's going to help our patients turn the corner and fix this acute asthma exacerbation. So the first section that I want to jump into here, outside of oxygen, we really should think about getting these patients on oxygen early, especially if their SpO2 is less than 92%. But in our box, we're going to talk about beta-2 agonists. So when we're thinking about these medications, when we're jumping into our box, the first thing that we want to establish, obviously, is getting that patient on oxygen. And then I'm going to urge you to consider some beta-2 agonists very early on in our treatment plan. So when we think of beta-2 agonists, we are often thinking about albuterol, levalbuterol, uh, maybe even isoproteranol, depending on where we're working, terbutaline. These are all pretty good beta-2 agonists that we're thinking about when we are addressing our asthmatic patient. So these medications work because they're going to activate these beta-2 adrenergic receptors on our smooth muscle. And as we talked about earlier, this smooth muscle is really constricted and has some increased mucus production because of the asthma attack. And so when we activate these receptors, 
we're going to activate adenocyclase and it's going to increase our cyclic AMP, which is going to activate protein kinase A, which is then going to result in our smooth muscle relaxation. So when we use this medication, we're typically nebulizing it for our patients. So we're going to get this smooth muscle relaxation all the way from the trachea down to the terminal bronchioles in our right and left lung. And so this is really going to work to open up this bronchoconstriction. It's going to start eliminating maybe some bronchospasm or at least helping in that sense. And it's going to do a really good job at allowing that expiratory phase to sort of decrease a little bit. We don't want that prolonged expiratory phase. And we're going to eliminate that air trapping. We're going to let that air come in. We're going to bronchodilate them. And our patient's going to improve from that. But I'm going to further urge you with our beta-2 agonists to think of a few medications that we commonly carry outside of albuterol. Another one that is really good for our asthmatics, works really well, is terbutaline. Terbutaline is, again, a beta-2 agonist. And we give this medication subcutaneously. And it works very similar to our albuterol that's nebulized. But if we give them in conjunction with each other, we have a really good effect at bronchodilation. And so many of us may remember terbutaline during the COVID-19 pandemic, or really epidemic, when we were giving it because we didn't want to do these aerosolized treatments. So terbutaline has not just fallen off of the face of the earth because COVID has become a little bit more controlled, maybe less prevalent in the areas that we're working. Terbutaline was around before COVID-19. It will be around afterwards. And it's something that I'm going to really urge you to consider looking into. A couple of the side effects with it uh, are going to be some cardiac arrhythmias, some palpitations, hypotension or hypertension, tachycardia, uh, dry mouth, nausea, dizziness. Um, But with any medication that we're giving, it's always important to continue to monitor our patient and monitor these possible side effects. But it is a medication that uh, maybe you have to call med command for, depending on the dosing where you work in the truck on a helicopter in the hospital. Maybe this is something you have at your disposal. And I think that it's really good medication to get on board early with our severe asthmatics. So the next sort of medication that we want to jump into falls into our nebulized treatment range. And that's going to be ipratropium. So we talked about earlier how in this asthma attack, we have this bronchoconstriction, this increased mucus production, maybe some bronchospasm. And what we're really going to do here is throw a medication that has anticholinergic effects. And so when we're doing this, we're going to decrease that mucosal production. So as we are bronchodilating these patients, we're also going to dry them out a little bit and make it even easier for them to breathe. And so when we're thinking about attacking our asthma patients, this really aggressive pharmacology is going to be the key. We want to get these patients on oxygen early. We want to hit them with these beta-2 agonists. We want to open them up, keep them open, get that air trapping under control, 
And then we also want to hit them with that anticholinergic. We want to hit them with ipratropium, the duoneb. I'm not saying that we need to do every nebulizer treatment as a duoneb. Maybe the first two, and then we just switch to albuterol. We don't want to overload them with these anticholinergics. But we definitely want to give it to sort of decrease this mucus production and really help our patients to breathe. I'm going to urge you to think about terbutaline. And in our severe, severe asthmatics, I'm going to always say if you feel that your patient is suffering from a very severe asthma attack, we want to make sure that we're getting that IM epinephrine in sooner than later. And realistically, that should be the first medication to be administered in a patient that's experiencing a very severe asthma attack. So the last medication that I'm going to talk about here are corticosteroids and then magnesium sulfate. So something that we really want to get early on in the treatment of these severe asthmatics are our corticosteroids. And the reason we want to do these sooner than later is because a lot of the benefits from this corticosteroid treatment are not seen for about 6 to 24 hours after administration just because of the times that it takes for those medications to reach their peak effect. Now, we will start seeing, especially with solumedrol, uh, an effect in about 45 minutes, and we may start to see some earlier relief than that, but those patients won't be seeing uh, really major effects for you know at least that first hour to hour and a half and seeing really strong effects at six hours before that medication excretes excretes itself in about 12 uh, to 24 hours. So we really want to think about corticosteroids in our patients that are not improving from the beta receptor treatments, these beta agonists. And there could be a number of reasons that the patient isn't doing well from the beta agonist therapy. It might be that severe of an asthma attack. And something that I'm going to urge you to do with all of your patients is obtain a medical history Because if our patients are on beta blockers, they may not be as responsive to our beta agonists if their receptors are being blocked. So we want to make sure we're getting a good medical history when we can from our patient. And finally, the last medication that I want to talk about is magnesium sulfate. And when we think about mag, we may be thinking about it, you know, for different reasons. I know they hammer in paramedic school that we're giving magnesium for uh, torsades de point, and that may not always be the case. We are giving magnesium for a variety of reasons. We can give it for seizures. We can give it for torsades, obviously, but we can also give it in our severe asthmatics. And I'm going to urge you to also get this medication going You know, early in our treatment plans. It's a smooth muscle relaxer, it inhibits smooth muscle contra- contraction, excuse me, and it's involved in the acetylcholine and histamine release from our cholinergic nerve terminals and mast cells. So it's going to block this calcium iron ion influx in our bronchial smooth muscle, and it's going to have a really therapeutic benefit in our severe asthma patients. And we want to make sure that we're getting this medication in there for our patients that are suffering from these moderate to severe asthma attacks because it's extremely effective. 
to relax that smooth muscle, to open our patients up further, and really allow our patients to have relief from this severe asthma attack. So I know that was a lot, and I know we've been talking a lot about a lot of medications. So the last two things we're going to jump into are some airway management and some clinical pearls here for our asthmatics. But before we jump into that closing sort of conversation about some clinical findings and pearls that we want to remember and some airway management, I want to just end this pharmacology talk with something that you heard a few different times, and that's we should get this medication on board early. And I cannot stress this enough. I know that we can't get every medication in our box to this patient right away, but we really should be developing a checklist for our asthmatics and really a lot of our patients at our priority of medications. But in the case of the asthmatic, when we are attacking asthma, we are wanting to get really aggressive with our pharmacology. We're going to want to get that duoneb on almost immediately if we're not treating this patient with epinephrine because that asthma attack is so severe. And then we're going to want to start getting that terbutaline in. We're going to immediately try and get that solumedrol in next if we can get IV access. And we should really think about getting IV access early on in these patients so that we can facilitate the administration of our IV medications and our IV corticosteroids. And once we get that in and we start allowing that to start taking effect, because it does take a while, as we talked about, then we want to start thinking about magnesium administration. Now, we may not need to use all of these medications, but if our patients are in so severe of an asthma attack, it can be extremely beneficial. And even in these moderate asthma attacks, our patients may benefit from really aggressive pharmacology to prevent a further asthma exacerbation in case they meet another trigger while we're en route to the hospital. So we should always be monitoring our patient for changes and considering the best treatment plan for our asthmatics. And often it's going to be that aggressive pharmacology. It's going to be getting these medications facilitated properly and given to our patients safely to really take care of that asthma attack. So like I said, the last two things we're going to talk about are some invasive and non-invasive techniques for ventilating our patients and managing our patients, and then some clinical pearls here. And we're going to talk about in the clinical pearls uh, some things that we want to look for with our end title CO2, because I know at this point, we're about a half hour into the podcast, and you're all thinking, I haven't even heard the term shark fin waveform in an attacking asthma podcast. Will, what the heck? And I promise you we're getting to it. That's going to come in our clinical management here at the very end when we're talking about some things that I want to leave you with to remember when we're on the truck. Because you're right. With these asthmatics, we are going to see the key thing that we're told in school, shark fin capnography. So very briefly, before we jump into a conversation about some clinical pearls and we dive into that golden child of shark fin capnography, I want to speak a little bit about managing these patients' airways. 
In our patients that are showing severe exhaustion, altered mental status, pale, cyanosis, our patients that are looking very sick from the asthma attack, we should really consider uh, commanding this patient's airway and doing some rapid sequence intubation. It's going to benefit our patient greatly. We're going to be able to uh, ventilate that patient and provide them with the therapies that they need. And we're going to jump into RSI in a future episode, so I won't beat that horse uh, too quickly yet. But the other airway management technique that we should consider with a severe asthmatic is using CPAP. So like we said before, we have this hyper-responsive airway, and we have this air trapping. And when we have that, we might have some alveolar collapse or atelectasis. And so when we're using CPAP, we are allowing this positive airway pressure to maintain a little bit of PEEP in our patients and allowing those alveoli to maintain this inflation that they need to get that air in the lungs. And we can use CPAP with an inline nebulizer treatment. We can continue to use our corticosteroids and our magnesium. Now, we do want to consider uh, how our patient is presenting when we think about CPAP. Because we know that CPAP uh, can cause our patients to be agitated, it's claustrophobic, uh, and it's providing this large amount of positive airway coming in. So when we have this hyper-responsive uh, airway, we don't want to hyperinflate our lungs, and we want to really monitor our patient because with CPAP, we have this increased expiratory uh, output that the patient has to do in order to get air out when we have this continuous error coming in. So if you have BiPAP, it may be a better option, but if you are limited to CPAP and your patient is in a severe asthma attack, it is most definitely something that is in our list of differentials to consider when we're choosing a treatment route for our patient. So now we can finally jump into the clinical pearls here of our severe asthmatics. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, some identification, recognition, early pharmacology, getting these medications on board early, which we already touched on a little bit. And we're going to end with what everyone's been dying to hear out this episode, this capnography talk. What are we looking for on our end title? What do we want to see in the future? And talking about this shark fin capnography when we have this prolonged expiratory phase. And I'm going to urge you to get capno on all of our asthmatics and a lot of our respiratory patients because although it may not provide a immediate sort of statistic that we're looking for when we think about like a vital sign um, or like a blood pressure that's telling us something immediately or someone's SpO2 being 84%, that's giving something, you know, right off the bat. But when we slap this end title on, we're not looking for something immediately. And I'm going to urge you to get it on early and especially get it on before we start treating these patients because we may not be able to differentiate visibly the difference between a moderate and severe asthmatic. But if we put the end title on, maybe we see a low end title reading, you know, 20s, low 30s, the shark finning. Once we give this patient a bronchodilator, is this reading coming up because the 
gas exchange is better now that there's no bronchospasm and air trapping? And is the shark finning starting to smooth out because this patient's expiratory phase is now starting to get some relief? Our patients may still be tachypnic. They may still be hyperventilating. But that end title trend is going to be really important. And that's what we're going to finish this episode with. So let's jump into these clinical pearls about identification early on. So we've made it to the end here, and we're talking about identifying our patients who are in an asthma exacerbation, whether it's a very acute onset, we just got there at the very beginning of the trigger, whether they're in a moderate or a severe asthma attack. Here's how we are going to attack these asthmatics. The most important clinical thing we are going to want to do in the field or in the hospital and we shouldn't only be doing this on our asthmatics but we want to do a very thorough patient assessment a physical assessment and a few of the things that we are going to want to look out for are going to be what we talked about earlier so if we use percussion on these patients that are in moderate to severe asthma attacks we might hear some hyperresonance because of that air trapping. Now that, again, is going to be a later sign, and that's going to be a fairly definitive sign that our patients are trending toward that severe asthma attack. If we auscultate, we're probably going to be hearing a good amount of bronchoconstriction. We may hear some wheezing, but those lung sounds are going to be pretty shallow. And one thing we don't want to forget is we may not be able to auscultate any lung sounds in any of our fields and lobes, because these patients are so bronchoconstricted, they might be moving such minimal amounts of air that we can't auscultate it. So when we're talking about asthma, we're really talking about that early cough as a trigger. We're talking about the tachypnea, shallow to absent respiratory auscultation, labored respiratory rate with that accessory muscle use, chest tightness, dyspnea, low SpO2. These are all things we want to consider. And I'm going to urge you to constantly be reassessing our respiratory patients. We really should be reassessing all of our patients, but make it a sign and a point to reassess these respiratory patients every two, three minutes, especially after we're doing interventions and treatments. We want to continually check their status. And that leads us to the last point that I have today that arguably may be the most important point in the clinical pearl talk now that we understand the pharmacology and the anatomy behind this. And that is getting that end title on early. So that shark finning that we're seeing is that prolonged end expiratory phase. Because of that hyperinflation and that bronchoconstriction, they have that prolonged expiratory end expiratory phase. So when we put the end title on, we may even be seeing a low end title reading, 25, 26, 30, because our patients have that air trapping and that poor gas exchange in the alveoli that we're really not putting off that CO2. But they're tachypnic and they've got that shark fin. So if we get that on early, 
I'm going to urge you that the most important thing that we're going to do with that end title outside of interpreting that waveform and continually interpreting that waveform and that measurement of that end title CO2 is to reassess the end title. Because if we have someone in a severe asthma attack and we give them a beta agonist, if we start to see that end title smooth out, well, I know that my intervention is working. They may still be tachypnic. They may still be short of breath. But I know that those beta agonists are working to open them up a little bit more. And I can see that on the end title waveform. If it's not working, we know that our patients are in this very severe asthma attack. And we know that we're going to have to be very aggressive with these patients. And not all patients are the same. So we have to remember that this isn't just a cookbook recipe for all asthmatics, but this end title for any respiratory patient is going to give us a huge insight into their respiratory status, and we have to know how to interpret it. So what I'm going to leave you with is that constant reassessment of our patients. With our asthmatics, we want to be aggressive early on with the pharmacology, and we want to do constant reassessment of the patient because it's going to tell us how our interventions are improving their respiratory status. And ultimately with our asthma patients, we want to know is what we are doing working? Are the beta agonists working? Do I need to continue to pursue that pharmacology route to a corticosteroid, to magnesium? Maybe I need to use some subcutaneous tributylene to sort of promote that additional beta agonist response and get that bronchodilation. So that's what I want you to remember when we are attacking our asthmatic patients. We want to identify it early on, continually reassess our patient, and I would urge you to get the end title on early and interpret it. As always, with this information, always follow your state, your national, and your local protocols. Don't operate outside your approved level of practice, but get out there, continue to do amazing things, and I cannot wait to hear you again on the next episode. As always, the email and the show notes are going to be linked below with all the articles that I use to gather this information. So feel free to give that a look. All right, so that's it for this episode. I've got some awesome stuff lined up in the next few weeks. So stay tuned for that. Can't wait to hear you back on the next episode of the Newly Meds podcast.